Hey everyone, welcome to the Fort Worth OMB Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Brian Wong. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Matthew Earl, and we're very excited to be here today. All right, Dr. Wong, how are you doing today? Oh, not bad, and Dr. Earl, I got my monster. I'm uh, very well caffeinated right now. Let's go. It's <laughs> good, because we're about to talk to about a pretty heavy subject, kind of fitting for the dreary, rainy day that we've got today. We're yeah. about giving bad news. Yeah, that's uh, the unfortunate side of our, of our profession, in that we are unfortunately tasked with the un unlikable or how do I say like unenviable job of giving bad news to, to patients whenever their loved one uh, is very seriously injured or sick. It's an important part of our job. Do you remember the first time you had to tell a family member that their that the patient had passed? Uh, I do. Um, I actually do. Um, it was when I was an intern in the ICU and one of my patients was very ill and uh, there are things that I wish that I had done differently in order to try to convey that their loved one was essentially passing. And I don't think that I used the right words in order to convey those things. So it kind of gave them a false sense of hope and security that they were, that the patient was going to make it through. There are things that I wish I had done differently in order to yeah. better convey the message. Absolutely. And, and so many people that I talk to about their first time, you know, giving that sort of really heavy news to a family, it, it gets so much of the same story of, didn't really feel prepared. I kind of stumbled around. I maybe was a little too positive, maybe a little too negative. Right, right. And the thing is that our medical education doesn't really prepare us in order to give these types of bad news to patients' families and whatnot. Exactly. So over the last few years, we've kind of gotten a little bit of education about it. We've done a lot of trial by fire. So hopefully today we can convey a little bit of what we figured out and learned the hard way so that the medics out there don't have to learn the hard way and can do this a little bit easier and sleep a little better at night when they have these tough conversations. So kind of like what we've talked about, this is an unavoidable and very important part of what we do. Uh, You're going to deal with really sick patients and they're going to have family and friends around who want to understand what's going on as best as they can. So being able to do this in a a skillful and caring manner is, is pretty important. And kind of like what you talked about when you did your did your first delivering of bad news, our, our EMS providers, they're out there in the thick of it. And a lot of times these patients have a sudden illness. This isn't the four and a half week ICU stay that we're finally, you know, kind of deciding that we've done all we can. Right. This could be a completely healthy young patient that was in a bad MVC and completely unexpected is now in a critical state. Or someone just walking down the street and then just go into VFib arrest. Right, exactly. So having these skills and, and knowing how to approach this awkward situation is so important because I think it's so much harder in that pre-hospital setting than it is for, for a lot of times for you and I where you have chronically ill patients. We, we do deal with some of the others, but most of the time I think we have it a little bit easier when we're delivering this information. And unfortunately, a lot of the, the research about giving bad news comes from a hospital setting. There really isn't a lot of research or or writing about how to do this properly in the pre-hospital setting. So a lot of what we're going to talk about today is what we're extrapolating from what's written about in the hospital and our personal experiences in the hospital. Are you suggesting that one of our paramedics actually do uh, uh, a written review or maybe some sort of study in our system? 100%. If you need a co-author, hit up Dr. Wong and I. We will help you get that paper out and get it published because there is... <laughs> nothing out there talking about this. 
But Dr. Wong, talk to me a little bit about how you would approach this scenario. Well, based off of the number of times I've actually had to deliver the bad news, I've learned a lot because of all the mistakes that I've made and the missteps um, that I had to kind of like make in order to finally get a better understanding of how to approach these things is the best, and honestly, the best way is to try to have a plan before you go into any situation or before, or even if you're in the middle of the situation, you kind of need to take a step back and overall assess what's going on with a patient and to better try to like navigate this murky situation. So like if I know that I'm about to walk into a situation where it's kind of futile um, with the patient being down for X amount of minutes and whatnot, X amount of hours, and I know it's not necessarily, I kind of take a step back with my team and then just take a deep breath and like understand like how I need to try to deliver this news. Yeah. Um, Overall, like it's really important to try to uh, convey the appropriate information in like the most constructive manner and to try to avoid any sort of like unnecessary emotional distress. The families are going to be understandably really riled up um, based off of, you know, personalities or upbringing and culture and whatnot. So they may be either really, really high in emotions or they may be really low in emotions, especially if they knew that this was coming for a long time. You don't want to try to add to that. That's like one of like the biggest things that I'm trying to, it's part of like my scene size up really before whenever, you know, like whenever we come up on it to size up the scene really and to try to understand, you know, like how am I going to try to best approach this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, if you have a, a really, really excited family, you might need to call for some additional resources or get PD, right? Yeah, that's the, that's one of like the biggest things. Um, the one thing I will say, um, is particularly in like the state of Texas, because it is a delegated practice, um, as EMS providers, we can't really give a diagnosis. Like as EMTs, paramedics, you can't really give a diagnosis to a patient. Can't really prognosticate like the patient, especially even though that you might know that this situation is pretty futile and whatnot. Try, try, try not to diagnose a patient with anything or prognosticate that, oh, the patient's going to live or whatever, because like that one is a pretty big no-no. Yeah, that's super important. I mean, you can, you can express concern, right? I'm concerned that given everything that we've done so far, it's not looking good. Uh, I'm concerned that your loved one ha- may have a GI bleed or you know whatever you think is going on, but avoid those definitive statements of your loved one will not make it, or if we take them to the hospital, they will make it. If you say stuff like that, you're going to get yourself in a lot of hot water. So you talked about having a plan, and I definitely agree. Whenever I'm doing this in a, in a hospital setting, uh, I will usually try to figure out where I'm going to do this, right? right. And for some families, doing it at bedside or, or in, in a, a pre-hospital environment, doing where doing this conversation where the family can see the patient being worked, especially if it's in rest, it may be helpful. And like you talked about earlier, depending on how keyed up that family is, that might be the absolute worst place to do it. Right? This is if absolutely family true. is really aggressive or extremely emotional and really not dealing and coping well, doing it in a place where they can watch their family member actively being, you know, have a, an MCD placed on them and, you know, smashing their chest, that might not be the best spot. So you, you kind of have to use your sense of how the family is responding 
to figure out where you're going to do this. On the flip side, too, like, you know, what you were saying before that was the fact that sometimes families do need to see that, though. Um, there are some families, and I can remember in residency where I had a family where it was they were just saying, do everything, and, you know, for my loved one, a miracle is going to happen, and da-da-da-da-da, and, you know, me as the provider, I knew that it was a pretty futile situation. So then I had my attending physician essentially bring the family in, and then as soon as that family saw, you know, their loved one getting chest compressions, blood coming out of, like, the ET tube, immediately, like, the family member was like, no, stop, I can't, I can't deal with this, you're causing the patient uh, harm and everything, you're causing my loved one harm, I can't do this, just, I think it's time to let them go, and unfortunately, you know, like, you do, it's a judgment call, where you do have to kind of uh, understand, you know, how the family is, and, and a lot of that is to really just, understanding how they're going to react and sometimes maybe they do need to see that and then maybe they need to understand the the gravity of the situation yeah i mean if their medical knowledge is is limited to what they've seen on tv doing everything is a lot more gnarly in real life than it is on tv and like you said once they have that realization that doing everything's pretty violent and pretty ugly they may decide that it's okay to to stop kind of going back to to choosing your site you're going to make this decision about where where you think the best spot to have this conversation with the family is no matter what it needs to be in a reasonably safe environment you should have a clear egress route so there should be an open door there so if the family reacts poorly you have a way to get away either to give them space because they need to process or if they become violent or have you know a poor reaction, you're able to safely remove yourself from that environment. Unfortunately, when people are going through grief reactions, they can be really unpredictable. Yeah. So a family member who seems pretty calm and stoic may blow up like a volcano in your face when yep. you tell them that Absolutely. Their, their mom's not gonna make it. Have a safe spot, don't be alone. And mm. you may not be able to bring your partner depending on how many people and what resources you have on scene, have someone with you whether that's someone from one of our FROs, whether that's a PD, have someone with you so that you are not the sole focus of attention of the family or family members. That can help you not only keep yourself safe, but if the family really zones in on you and they're really focused on you and you become the bad guy, your partner can start to speak up as well and it becomes more of a team effort as opposed to just, you know, you're the medic that's not saving my family member, and you have a little bit of corroboration from your team. And they're going through a grief reaction. Absolutely. They're going through a grief reaction, and they're going to be angry first. So they're going to just, you know, just be all over the place, and like, and it's understandable, and you can't necessarily blame them for, for having that type of a reaction. Everyone's going to have that reaction. Absolutely. And another important point here when you're delivering this news is figure out who your audience is. Right? If the only person on scene is best friend from high school, you, you may not really need to tell them very much. That's not family member. They're not making medical decisions. The converse to that is if you have the entire extended family at home because grandma's not doing well, it's going to be pretty difficult to deliver this news to a room full of 15 people. Yeah, And when you get large groups like that, you get into dynamics where people are performing for each other. They think they're supposed to be sad, so they really overact it. 
I would encourage you to choose a small group of people. And if you have a power of attorney, next of kin, husband, wife, son, daughter, whatever, you can ask that person, is there one or two people you would like to have with you during this discussion? But really be careful when you start getting above that number. Right. Because people, you're starting to deal with a bigger group and you're moving more towards crowd control than having a controlled conversation. Right. Yeah. The the large number of people can be very intimidating, even for the, even the most seasoned of uh, clinicians. Absolutely. So before you go in to have this conversation, is there anything you do to kind of steal yourself and, and get yourself ready for this? Ooh, man, I always have to take a deep breath. Yeah. I always have to, before I go into any sort of situation where I'm about to deliver bad news, I kind of like stop at the door a little bit, not only because like I'm an ER physician. So like I have the luxury of placing, you know, the patient's family in the patient way, family waiting rooms and whatnot and the family rooms. And I always just kind of go in, take a deep breath you know, kind of collect myself and you'll go over the plan in my head, you know, and I always have like the same kind of script that I go in with, uh, with room for variation and improvisation. And to go back to kind of your, your pre-entry, uh, so important to take that pause and slow your heart rate down, slow your breathing down. Oh, absolutely. Um, it, it's kind of, it kind of like talking on a radio right? If you key your radio and you're all excited and you're breathing fast and you're yelling into the radio, you're not calm. You're not in control of that situation. Yeah. And everyone who hears you on that radio knows it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's not the persona you want to put forward when you're having this chat with the family. Yeah, right? absolutely. Take a second, take a couple deep breaths, let your heart rate come down a little bit. Like you said, review your plan, think through your script in your head. Yep. So when you walk in there, it's like you said, you're Hi, my name is Dr. Wong. My name is Medic. Whoever. Absolutely. I'm the one taking care of your loved one right now. I want to talk to you about what's going on. Absolutely. And that nice, even keel tone as well, that it, it kind of projects a an air of confidence, an air of, you know, professionalism. And it can be calming for, for a lot of people as well. 100%. Because it conveys, I am in control of this situation. And your loved one is in good hands. Absolutely. If you come in with your shirt untucked, your hair all must, breathing fast, blood on your gloves, you don't look like you're in control. And as someone who's receiving bad news, I may question you more. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I don't want someone taking care of me or my family member who is all completely frazzled. Absolutely, absolutely. And some of this may be a little bit of play acting. Right in these really, really stressful resuscitations, you might be a little rattled inside, but yeah. that's where taking this pause to compose yourself, don't show that side to the family. Absolutely, the family only sees the control, the calm, the competent clinician. Absolutely. So, Doctor Earl, I kind of already went into it a little bit, but how do you set the scene? How do you kind of like go into these situations? I know that. Like I said, I have a script and then that I can kind of like run through. How do you do it? So I, I kind of do something similar to what you discussed. My first move is usually, what do you know? So I go into the room and I ask the, I introduce myself and I ask the family, what do you know that led us here right now? Hi, my name is Dr. Earl. Who are you? Yeah. How do you know this patient? Exactly. Who all do we have in the room? 
what hap what do you know about happening today? So do they know that their family member has been in a car accident or do they just know that their family member's at the hospital? Right? People come in with varying degrees of information. Yeah. They may be the person who called 911 and they were there through the whole work on the scene. They may have just been called by a family member and say, go to the hospital, Timmy's not doing well. Right. So really setting that scene and understanding how much background information you're going to need to tell them. Mm -hmm. If they've gotten a blow-by-blow -blow from everyone in the pre-hospital setting, maybe a, a nurse has come in through the resuscitation and given them information, it, you don't have to do as much background as you can move more towards telling them what's going on. So I think it's really important to ask that question and establish what do we know so far. And I feel like by asking that question, based off the way the family answers, you can gauge their understanding of medicine, mm -hmm. right? If they come, at, come in and say, well, I understand my, my family member was found on the ground. He was in V-fib. Um, he got shocked a couple times and got brought to the hospital. We're operating at a decent medical level. And sometimes you're also going to have, you know, like a family who are all like medical professionals. Some, Absolutely. Some of them are going to be family members who are actually physicians, yeah. you know, like internal medicine doctors, ER physicians who have a working knowledge yeah. of. Or they've been dealing with a chronic yeah. illness with their family member for such a long time that they've just learned this by being immersed in it for so long. Absolutely. But you also have the converse of, I don't know what happened. Grandma fell down. And people started doing whatever that was on her chest, and now I'm here. Yeah. So that tells you that I really need to be focused on how I use my words and what words I use to convey this message. Mm -hmm. So the, the two parts to that is, first off, you figure out what you need to tell them, but you also get an idea of how you need to say it. Mm -hmm. And from there... Once you kind of figure out what the background is and you set the scene of what led up to the patient being in your care, that's where I'll start talking about what's been done so far, right? We've been doing chest compressions. We've been giving strong medications. We've been shocking your, your family member's heart with electricity, all which is intended to try to restart their heart. And you can go through everything that you've done so far be really careful with how you word this. I think in our mind, especially if we're stressed or we're in a high-stress situation, we're more likely to report this as a verbal narrative than we are to actually tell the story, right? Right, yeah. And if you, especially if you're using like medical jargon, right? Yeah. It's not a hospital handoff, right? You're not saying we've got a 37-year-old male found down, unknown downtime, we've done five rounds of CPR, two doses of epi, no shockable rhythms, MCD in place. That means nothing to family members. Yeah, because essentially you're talking over their heads. Oh, 100%. And, I mean, unless you work in the pre-hospital setting, rattling that off really quickly, there's a lot of healthcare providers that are going to look at you and say, I don't know what you just said. That's yeah. not their world. Absolutely. Right? So making sure that you really take a step back and give that information in a way that the family can understand. Right? When we arrived, your family member's heart wasn't beating. Currently, we're doing chest compressions to try to keep blood flowing to their brain while we try to get their heart restarted. We're giving powerful medications, and we're using electricity to try to restart their heart. Unfortunately, so far, we have not been successful. It's, uh, it's good language right there that pretty much anyone can understand. Yeah, and again, keep in mind, these are 
people who are going through a grief reaction, you may need to walk through that a couple of times before they good really point. honestly get it. It's a very, very good point because it just might be in one ear and out the other. And then they might even be persevering on the fact like, oh, you're trying to restart the heart. Yeah. Oh, you're trying to restart the heart. Okay. All right, then. Yeah. There's hope. You, you, there's hope. Yep. You're, you're going to restart the heart, right? Exactly. So, but then you probably have to keep on reiterating that fact. Yeah. And knowing when to pause. Right. And, and I think this is one thing that we got in medical school that is important. When you say the word cancer, ears turn off. Yep. Right. If you're counseling someone about malignancy for the first time, the second you say the word cancer, you need to shut up because there's a minute or more of that patient just just absorbing what you just told them. And anything you say after that has no value. They're not going to hear it. And same thing for here. You know, your family member has died, stop. They don't care about ROSC. They don't care about shocks. They don't care about compressions. They may ask you questions, but after you deliver that kind of heavy news or your family member's critically ill, you need to take a pause. Yeah. Give them 10, 15, 30 seconds before you keep going. A lot of times we're tempted to freight train this information, right? You just start and you just keep going. And this isn't a, a time where that's going to be beneficial for the family members. And to kind of go back to what you were saying before, too, I think that, you know, speaking in plain language, in almost layman's terms, to try to convey the message to the patient's family members is absolutely critically important. Speaking in plain terms with language that everyone can understand is absolutely critically important. Yeah. And, and, you know, the way I like to think of it is think back to the first time you looked at an EKG. Just scribbles on a piece of paper. No idea what's going on. Right? And that's our bread and butter now. For, for medics and docs alike, we do that every day. But think back to how much of a mystery that piece of paper was when you first saw it. Oh, absolutely. That's the level that most family members are going to be operating at. There's some squiggles on that paper, and you're telling me that because of those squiggles, my family member's dying. So keep that in mind when you're, when you're having these conversations. So do you have particular words that you'll use to try to convey a situation to make sure that what you're saying is clear? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, if, for instance, in a patient who is critically ill, I, uh, I tend to use words like very sick, seriously ill, um, life-threatening. Um, those are the kind of like the words that have a lot of gravity to it. Um, and if their heart stopped and they'll be like, hey, their heart stopped. Their heart stopped and I'm trying to use medications to bring them back. But, and then if they're not, if you're not getting back, I, I am having trouble bringing their heart back. Um, I can't bring it back right now. That's the reason why we're doing all of these things right now. And then, you know, like I, I try to be, if, if the situation is very serious, I'm going to say it's very serious. Even if, yep. like, you know, like in a, in a GI bleeder, they're throwing up blood right now. This is a very serious situation. This can potentially be life-threatening. So the other, the other part of that is what do you do when you counsel family on a critically ill patient who is stabilizing? I always try not to, like, overestimate um, these situations. I try not to give them any sort of like glimmering, shining hope and whatnot. Um, I can always tell them, it's like, hey, 
they're they're we're getting them a little bit more stable, but they're still incredibly sick. Um, trying to convey the message that they're not necessarily out of the water yet, um, and to try to be uh, very blunt um, about like the assessments and everything like that. And I try not to like you know overestimate the optimism with these patients because families will hold on to that. 100%. They will hold on to that, and then they will run with it. Yep. Um, and I do it all the time in the ER. I always go in and, like, you know, tell patients, families, like, hey, you're very critically ill. So in that moment uh, for the pre-hospital provider, hey, I'm getting, the, like, the, the patient stable right now. Mm-hmm. But there's a very real chance that we can lose pulses. There's a very real chance that, you know, they can go in the wrong direction again. Um, and, you know, to kind of, like, temper those expectations, that's the perfect word, and that's what I think it's all about tempering, right? If you're giving positive information, your family member was critically ill, but they have stabilized, you're tempering with, but they are still critically ill, and we need to continue to do these very important interventions. They're not out of the woods yet, right? They're still in a critically ill state. Same thing for, you know, your family member has decompensated. They are very critically ill. We are doing everything we can to resuscitate them and make them better, but they are still ill. So if they're improving, you're still saying they're not all the way better, and if they're getting worse, there's still some things for us to try, but they are very ill. So making you don't have to be all doom and gloom. You can walk that razor blade of, we're serious, but we're not end game yet. Uh, but really kind of judging based off of the family's reactions too. Are they really fixated on the fact that you said there's some hope? You might need to emphasize a little bit more that their family member's really sick. Yeah. And if they're all like, oh my God, they're dead already. No, we, we still have some tricks in our, in our playbook to try, but we're getting close to the end of the game. Mm-hmm. So what happens, Dr. Earl, that you do come to the end of the game, that it is game over and that the patient has died? What do you do then? So pretty much following all of the steps that we've already talked about, right? You're choosing your team, you're choosing a safe environment, you're establishing what they understand, and you're talking about everything that you did up until the resuscitation was called. And obviously in the pre-hospital environment, this may be a little bit differently because you may be having this conversation with family in order to call the code, or you may be discussing this with family members after the code has been called. In general, the number one rule is you need to use the word dead or died. You can't okay. avoid those words. Yeah. Using the, the common terms of, you know, has passed, they're gone away, they've gone to the other side, they've gone to heaven, they're not with us anymore. In a person who's undergoing an acute grief reaction, those might just be more confusing than anything. Mm-hmm. And even though they're common terms, you never know what that person may use to say the word dead. Everybody gets what dead means. Yeah. That's not ambiguous at all. I'm very sorry to tell you this, but your family member has died. And again, like we talked about with the cancer, once you say died or dead, you stop. Yeah. See how that family and family member reacts and try to be as supportive as you can. If you're having that conversation before calling the resuscitation, usually after I describe what we've been doing, I will transition over to saying something along the lines of, given everything we've talked about, at this point, 
there's an almost 0% chance that we're going to be able to get your family member's heart restarted. Yeah. We've been doing this for 45 minutes, and it's, I think it's best at this time if we stop CPR. And again, you're not necessarily asking permission. Can we stop CPR? You're saying, I think our, our protocols and our docs, and I think it's best we stop at this point because right now we're just torturing your family member and the likelihood of us getting their heart restarted is pretty much zero. It's going to be really hard for some families to take, and they might not Absolutely. want you to stop. No, exactly. And that's going to be up to provider judgment, right? If you think that this is going to lead to violence or you know, you're very concerned about stopping the resuscitative effort, that's going to be a provider call. If you're really confused or you're not sure what the right thing to do is, give OLPG a call. Ah, the OLPG bailout the, right the, there. The easy button. Give yeah. us a call. These, these yeah. are hard situations, uh, and we can, we can help with that. The other thing that might be helpful is saying something along the lines of the, the patient has died, not your family member is dead. It's a small variation, but it's a little bit less harsh to say they have died than it is to say they are dead. It still conveys the message, yeah. but it's not as direct. It feels a little bit less like a hammer blow to the face. Yeah. Right? But I, at the same time, it still gets the message across. It, it's the same, the same thing, but, you know, it's a little bit softer. The delivery is different. Exactly. And... At this point, like we said, you're going to allow for that pause, and you're going to see how the family reacts. Some people will be really, really stoic. Some people will fall apart. Some people may get aggressive and violent. And again, that goes back to why you really want to make sure you have a team with you Yeah. Because and an open egress route. You want to be able to separate yourself from that situation as quickly as possible if they have an unexpected reaction. Yeah. So after you... You, you kind of drop that bomb. What are you going to be doing with these, these patients and their family members after you convey that, that pretty serious message? So really is just trying to normalize those feelings. They are, like what we've been talking about before, they're going to be the spectrum of emotions of grief, sad, screaming, angry, just sobbing, inconsolable, um, but it's in based off of you know what we were saying before the cult the culture the ethnicity social backgrounds the upbringing personalities and whatnot there are going to be people who are going to be reacting completely different and just all over the place. Um, it's really important to try to normalize their feelings. Um, it's normal to feel like overwhelmed, to feel sad, to feel angry, um, especially to lose someone that you've loved you know, like so for so much for so long. Um, and it's just, it's hard for a lot of these people. Um, and the biggest thing is to really just allow them time to kind of like to go through those emotions, to kind of like go through them and just like think about that. Um, and it's important for like our providers to really just be empathetic for our, you know, like our patient's family members um, to understand that it, it is completely normal for them to go through that and to try to remain as professional as possible. Um, 
and to offer them some sort of supportive language, some sort of supportive body language, hand them a tissue or something along those lines and say like, hey, I'm really sorry for your loss. Um, there are certain phrases that I would try to avoid though. Um, I would try to avoid, you know, saying like, I know how you feel. Because there's going to be people who are going to say like, no, you don't. You don't know anything about that. And you don't want to get into like this back and forth with a family member. It's just only going to escalate things. Um, and emotions are already high. It can kind of get you into a little bit of trouble. Um, avoid stuff like, oh, my, my, my blank family member died last year. They're not going to really care because they're the ones that are going through those emotions. Um, try to avoid like stuff like, oh, he or she had a very full life. I know like you're just trying to help, but in those situations, it, it could potentially do a lot more harm than good. Um, try not to say it's like, oh, everything is going to be okay. Um, religious phrases also, because like even though there is a lot of crossover between religions and whatnot, at the same time, the nuances might be quite different. And you want to try to avoid those things. You don't want to try to impose your views and your beliefs onto the patient who is experiencing extreme grief and, you know, for whatever it is. Really easy way to put your foot in your mouth. Yeah, absolutely. And also just to kind of like reaffirm to like the family or the bystanders that, you know, you did everything that you could. But if they also did something like if, say, you know, like, for instance, abuela kind of like you know, went into cardiac arrest and, you know, mom tried to like, you know, do chest compressions and couldn't do it. And, you know, like some of them are going to feel very guilty about like what they did. Um, You have to try to, you know, try to validate them and saying to them like, hey, you did everything that you could. Um, If they did uh, attempt like CPR or something along those lines. Um, like you even did everything if, that you could, you know, like, you know, the CPR, you gave them the best chances possible. Yeah. Even if they were just the ones to call 911. Yeah. You did everything you could to help them. Um, you know, unfortunately they didn't make it, but you, you did, you did everything, like you said, you did everything you could to give them the best possible chance they could have. Yeah. And a lot of them too are, are going to end up with some form of like post traumatic stress because of this, yeah. you know, incident and whatnot. So, um, to try to validate them in that moment can go a long way. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, after you've, you've kind of gone through this whole process with them, keep in mind you're still the expert in the room. They're not going to know what happens next, right? So if this was an unexpected death, does it need a medical examiner? Does the, do they need to call a funeral home? Where do you go from here? So after you have these conversations with people, your role becomes making sure that the family understands the next steps. What questions do they have? And they may not have them for a little while because they're pretty overwhelmed. Right. But as the scene is wrapping up, circling back to the family and making sure they don't have any questions. Yeah. um, Because they may not know what to go from here, where they're going from here. So that's really important. Uh, Not a light topic. No, not at all. Not a light topic at all. It's a difficult subject, too. And like we were saying, like, you know, I don't think that we as providers get a whole ton of of education on this no for something that is this important we we really don't do a lot of talking and training on this so i feel like it's it's a it's an important thing to at least put out an episode about and hopefully we can save some 
save some families some trauma and save some medics some pretty awkward interactions in a bad situation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and if any medics or EMTs out there want any more questions or kind of like scenarios that they want to go through with us, you know, more than welcome to come up to OMD, kind of talk to us and go through the scenario and we'll be there to provide the best kind of wisdom and guidance that we can. Yeah, this is one of those things that is on the job training only and we're more than happy to, to go through those cases with you. But overall, thank you to everyone for, for tuning in this week. Sorry, it was a little bit of a, a downer subject. Don't forget our show notes will be available on the Fort Worth OMD website. And uh, we look forward to chatting with you next time. Yeah, see you next time, guys. Bye.